Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Kettle One Botanical. The past month or so, I spent a lot of time in the Goop kitchen, recipe testing and filming videos on everything from salads to cocktails. You can guess which was more fun. I have some tried and true cocktails that I make at home, but I like to take inspiration from the recipes our food editor, Caitlin, comes up with. Over the years, she has made a bunch in partnership with Kettle One Botanical. Here's why this is very goopy. Kettle One Botanical is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. You can mix with Fever Tree Club Soda for a simple botanical spritz, or if you're looking for some custom cocktail ideas, you can find those on goop.com. And to order Kettle One Botanical now, head to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive, on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. I'm very excited that today's guest said yes to coming on this podcast. She's won 11 Emmys. She's a mother and wife and a devoted defender of the environment. She's incredibly inspirational and has expanded our idea of what it means to be a powerful woman. She has played some of the most iconic characters on television, beginning with Seinfeld's Elaine. She starred in and executive produced Veep, which ran for seven critically acclaimed seasons. And now she's starring in the new film, Downhill, alongside Will Ferrell, which you have to see. Of course, I'm talking about Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Because I think the big takeaway is that good people can do bad things, and how do they recover from those moments? And can they own them? And what happens when you own your bad behavior? And what happens when you don't? And the shame that surrounds all of it. It's complicated. Let's get right to our conversation. Oh, are you sick? Uh, I'm on the end of it. I've had it since last Tuesday. Oh, I know. It's, anyway, it's fine. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my God, I'm so happy you're here. So how many great-grandfathers was it who, st- who started the Louis Dreyfus Company? I'm embarrassed that I don't know that. <laughs> but I think it's great, great. I think it's great, great, great. My husband's very into especially anything World War II. So he's the one who told me that you had a Jewish-French family. Yes. And that they were involved in the resistance or something. Is that right? Yes. My grandfather flew for the Free French and was a huge part of that resistance. He escaped 
France during the war and uh, and work with de Gaulle and flew all, all over the place. My dad went with his mom, his mom who had an American passport, and so they were able to escape through the south of France, through Lisbon, and then they came to the States. In what year? 44, maybe. And then, but he, they kept their, he kept, he, he always worked for the company, and even when they moved... Oh, well, no, no. He was a young boy then, my dad. He was little. He was like seven. Okay. And then he started working later in life. Later in life, yeah. He was an attorney for a while. He studied. He went to law school, and then he joined the company. Is he still alive? He isn't, unfortunately. He passed in 2016. Sorry. Thanks. That sucks. It's hard to lose your dad, isn't it? It's the worst. Yeah. When did your dad pass? 2002. Hmm. A long time ago, but I'm totally not over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get it. But that's amazing stock, no? Your grandfather was a fighter pilot or whatever? Yeah, it's cool. It's I mean, I didn't, cool. I, I will admit, I didn't know him super well. It was sort of like the French family on the other side. My dad was very, very much wanted to kind of, uh, cr- create a life with his family separate from his French family, mm-hmm. frankly. And so we didn't have a lot of tons of communication with the French side. We did, but it wasn't tons and tons. Right. And I also grew up in Washington, D.C. with my mom right. and my stepdad. I mean, I lived in New York for when I was little, and then we moved to D.C. when I was about eight, and that's where I spent the remainder of my childhood. And then I went back and forth to... New York to see my dad and my stepmom and my sisters on that side. Did do you, did you grow up speaking French? Well, you'd think I would have, right? <laughs> I I could kill my dad for that if he isn't wasn't already dead, <laughs> because he should have taught us. I did. I I think I I do speak a certain amount of French. I learned it in school and I think by osmosis, but. You know, it would be really nice if I was properly bilingual, and I am not. Right. Do you feel any kinship to France or French totally. culture? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. In fact, we just went to, because you say your husband's interested in World War II, we just Very. went to, did you go to Normandy yet? Oh, no, we're saving that trip for some, because we, we have to go on the day of oh. the actual... D-Day. D-Day, thank you very yes. much. June 6th. Yeah, so we have to go in June, and it would be better if it was on some kind of anniversary. He's, it is... Mind blowing. It is. Yes, we just. I'd never been. We just went this past summer with my sister and her family and my family, and it was mind blowing. Mind blowing. Why? Tell because me. Because you get a guide, and the guide will take you to various battle sites, beaches. There's so much history, and there's so much story behind what happened, and you're really over come by the, and, and I, it, that's a word that's used a lot, but really it, it is in almost the, the task that they had at hand, that our side, was so daunting. Everything was going against them. The fact that they were able to persevere and conquer mm. was, I, I just can't get over it. And mm. they were young kids, yeah. by the way. Kids. Kids. You know, like 18, 19. 
And you have sons, right? I have sons. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. You have sons. I have one son and one daughter. How old are they now? My daughter's almost 16. Oh, wow. And my son is almost 14. Wow. Teenagers. So did you, you have to, afterwards, will you give me the, like where you stayed and ate and everything? Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. So you come from, you come from that. You come from that stock. I come from that stock. What's your stock? My stock is so my on my father's side, I'm Jewish, Ashkenazi, Polish mostly. Mm -hmm. And then on my mother's side, I'm a real mutt of like German, English, Scottish. Mm. My brother did 23andMe and he was able to. So, you know, when you mix those things together, so we grew up in a you know, and, and, and that time too, when my parents got married, there wasn't a lot of intermarriage between Jews oh, and Christians. Yeah. It was like a real thing. So what'd you do like holiday time? We kind of did everything. Nice. I know. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up Jewish? No. No. No, we did Christmas and... Is your mom Christian? Yeah, Christian-ish, you know. <laughs> Is that a sect? A uh-huh. sect of Christianity? Yeah, Exactly. She was a Unitarian for a while. Just Is she alive? Yes. Oh, great. Okay, so you grew up in D.C. Yes. When, and you went to an all-girls school? I did. So did I. So I wanted to ask you about that. Where'd you go? I went to a school called Spence in New York City. Oh, sure, yeah. So do you think, what, what do you think that being in a girls' school gave you in terms of like what you were able to bring to your confidence, and do you think it informed your performing? I do. I think from a positive point of view, for me, it was, you know, I took on a lot of responsibility in that school at certain points, you know, my sophomore, junior, senior year. And I don't think I would have done that if there had been boys. I mean, I actually know that because I loved boys. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think I would have sort of demurred, but I was feisty and wanted, you know, to be president of the class or president of the honor council or president of thespians or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I was outspoken and I was a big joker, sort of. And so I, I think that it gave me for sure a kind of confidence that I would not that in a co-ed situation, it might have been not quite the case. The school that I went to, I don't know what Spence was like, but when I was at my school, this was in the 70s in Washington, D.C., and it was a very conservative school. Mm -hmm. And so that aspect of it, I did not like. It was politically conservative, and I think actually to a certain extent socially conservative. So they weren't, uh, I, I felt a little bit... Like, I didn't belong there, really, in a lot of ways. But I made girlfriends while I was there that are still, for instance, we just got together last month, my girlfriends from third grade. That's amazing. Yeah, I have all a five of us. thing from Spence. You too. do? Yeah. I think it's very conducive to lifelong friendships, you know, because foster so much connection between young women. It's amazing. Yeah, right. It really does. Yeah. Were you always funny? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> My family's funny. When did you realize you were funny? 
Well, I have memories of, of laughing with my mom that are very important to me. We used to watch Captain Kangaroo and and Soupy Sales. When, <laughs> this is when I was really tiny. And I think it was in Captain Kangaroo where ping pong balls would fall down on people, or maybe it was Soupy Sales, one or the other. And, you know, three-year-old me thought that was so funny. And I just remember howling, laughing with my mom. And my mother has a laugh that's very infectious. And so laughter and making jokes has been a part of the plan from the get-go to a certain extent. It's sort of the culture of our family, I think. So you started to put it to use in college? Well, no, I think probably in, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I did plays and stuff in grade school and in high school and so on. And and humor would be a part, even if it was sort of, even if, I mean, we did Cherry Orchard, for example. But although Chekhov Not a lot be, of humor. No, well, but there's Chekhov a couple moments, actually. very funny yeah. to a certain extent. Maybe not that play as much, but <laughs> still. But still, there, you know, it was always sort of intertwined with everything else. Yeah. But it wasn't just comedy that I was doing. Right, you know, it was right. Like so you were always performing. Okay. Yeah. And I assume you were too. I mean, a, a bit... Yeah, I did it more at camp. I, I love to do it in, in summer camp in the summer. I went mm. to a camp where they had a lot of plays. What camp did you go it to? It was called Brown Ledge. It was in Vermont. It was a girls' camp as well. Uh-huh. I don't know what my parents thought. They were I was. keeping you away from the boys. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but I loved that camp, and we did a play every week. We did like a series of one-act plays every week, so it was really fun. And then, um, But I didn't do it so much in, at, in high school. But I always knew that I wanted to do it. Did you always know you wanted to do it? Yes. It was the only thing I wanted to do. Right. Nothing else. It's funny. It really grips you from a young age, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. And it's like, and then when it becomes a thing that's not an extracurricular activity, it's like, oh, right? <laughs> you don't have to do your homework. You can just work on this play, this movie, this whatever it happens to be. That's really nice. So when did that start to happen? College. Because I started to really study. It was a line of study at college. And then and then I started to do theater in Chicago. Northwestern is a great theater department. Yeah, it really does. And even better now than it was when I was there. Like, I think light years, frankly. And then I became, you know, Chicago, particularly when I was there, there was so much young, fabulous uh, cutting edge theater, you know, Steppenwolf was starting then, Remains, The Good Men, my husband's theater company called Practical Theater Company. So we were all sort of, there was this community of actors sort of making art in town that was really a thrill to be a part of, like thrilling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That sounds, is that when you met your husband? Yeah. Wow. So how long have you been together? 103 years. <laughs> 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 and were you guys were you were you still in Northwestern when you were doing plays or would, in Chicago or did that come after or I was still at Northwestern it was all sort of happening at, at the once. same time yes and what was it like to be a part of that scene and in Chicago at that time well it was kind of hard to do both you know but I was pretty sort of ambitious I just went and auditioned for Second City and got in and Amazing. you know but then I had to go to class and you know there's a lot of sort of straddling worlds there. But it was a thrill. It was just like 
it changed my life. Mm. I mean, it really did change my life. And it changed my life not only because of the work aspect of it and because that opened up my mind to a way of performing and and collaborating, but also the people I met, you know, they opened up my world. And it was just an amazing time. And is Second City predominantly improv? I mean, I don't know how the fuck you do that. I think you probably do. I bet you it's scary to me. Well... Like that someone's like, okay, you, you're going to be this and you're going to be this and there's a whole audience full of people watching. Go. Yeah, it is scary. But it's the, the fear that kind of is, a, is like gas in your tank. How does that particular craft of improv, because I've never done it, how does that inform acting? Well, to be honest with you, I think it's the greatest skill set you can have. Yeah. Because... You have to listen, right? So intently. You have to be as present as you can possibly be and listen. With every pore, right? To body language, energy, words. Yes. And so it's really useful in a scene. And in a scene where it's not a scene about improv, because what can happen then is you can layer up what you're doing. It can help you find moments, business, stuff that's not on the page. It can help um, thicken up the performance, the the stew, oh, as amazing. it were. I mean, Veep is a really good example of that. We uh, almost all the actors on the show are have an improv background to a certain extent, and so they so that came into great use all the time. I mean, <coughs> for that reason alone, not that I really am doing acting very much, but for that reason alone, I always was interested in trying to take an improv class just because of the quality of and the level of listening. I imagined you would have to like develop to and the adrenaline at the same time and then having to modulate the adrenaline while you're yeah, you know, writing your scene and making all these choices and it right. seems to me like the hardest form of acting there is. I don't know if I would say it's the hardest. I mean, the hardest is when it's not working. True. That's when it's a yeah, nightmare. That's really not good. That's a sick feeling. It's terrible. Isn't it's it? It's like egg on your face. It's, it's I don't like, like it, it gets you in your core. I know. But drama for you, love it. Love. And the same skills supply. Yeah. So you, you do Second City with all these incredible people. Will you just tell everybody who's listening, some of the people who were at Second City at the time? Well, full disclosure, I was in the touring company. Oh, breaking news. So it was not the most glorious of gigs. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, out of Second City came so many people that, so many people that you know, I mean, they weren't there when I was there, but Belushi and, and John Candy and Dan Aykroyd and Steve Carell and I think Stephen Colbert. And I mean, there are just a lot of people who were, and I, I, I can't, my brain is mush. I can't remember, but I mean, the list is very, very long. But actually for me doing Second City, although it was, again, really instructive because I was in sort of the touring company and there was a hierarchy there so that you were sort of, I was traveling with a, a sort of this band of people. Oh my God. And there were so many drugs. Everyone was so stoned all the time. And that was very tr- stressful. So 
I'm, I'm really happy to have had the experience, but it was really practical theater company in Chicago that was the uh, uh, sort of that really moved the needle for me in a big way artistically. And we did shows in Chicago that were big hits at the time, and it was out of that that uh, we all, in fact, got hired to be on SNL off, out of that. And what was that like? That was like, it felt, in the moment, it felt like Cinderella going to the ball because I had grown up watching mm. SNL in its in its early days, right? Because, like, it started, I think, in 75 or something like that. So I'm in junior high school and goo-goo gaga for this thing because there was nothing like it on television. Yeah. It really spoke to kids our age. And it was irreverent and just, it was, it, I, I loved it so much. And then to get put into it was just like, uh, and, and I was still in college. And so I was like, ah, I'm dropping out of college. I'm going to New York. I'm doing this show, the show I've always wanted to do. And they're going to pay me. I can't believe it. I mean, it was just so, uh, it turned out not to be as much fun as I'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the way things do sometimes in this business that yeah. we're in, mm -hmm. but I'm really glad I did it yeah. because I learned how to do live television. I made a lot of further friendships with people that are significant to me in my life still today. And it was, I think, you know, in retrospect, it's probably, you know, it's sort of good not to get what you want necessarily. You can learn from that. And I did. It was not a great, at the time, it was being, Lauren Michaels was not there. And it was not a female-friendly environment mm. at all. Okay. So it's bad news in that area. And again, with the drugs, everybody's on coke or whatever it is they're on. And so it was it was pretty chaotic and very dog eat dog. That's what right. the that's what the culture was like. What do you think you learned from that? Well, I learned something so simple, but I remember leave I'd had such a good time doing theater in Chicago with my friends at the practical theater company. That was like a dream. And I remember thinking, okay. I'm going to keep doing this if I can find a way to have fun. But if I can't, I'm not going to do it anymore. And I gave myself that out right. inside. And I think that really helped. Right. And I'm sure you learned a bunch of survival skills in the workplace. I think I did. Yeah. Women are good at that kind of adaptation. Yeah, I know. Sometimes too good. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I maybe was a little too good. Right. To be honest. <laughs> but I was young. I didn't know. And then how many years after that? Will you just tell me a little bit about how you ended up on Seinfeld? Oh, sure. And it's so funny because I'm looking across from you and there's something like I see elements of little Sasha Seinfeld, you know, oh. the, in, in you. It's so funny. Just like, I mean... I don't think she's your secret daughter, but she's not. like, I've just been sitting here thinking, gosh, there's just, there's like, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. We'll announce that on this show. Yeah. She exactly. is my daughter. <laughs> Larry David had been a writer on SNL my third year. I was on SNL three years. He was there one year. It did not go well for him there. And we sort of bonded over that fact. I'd kind of go into his office and we would kind of bond with our misery so we became friends, and I, I believe 
Lair didn't even get one sketch on the air. Wow. Or maybe it made it to dress, but then it got cut before air, something like that. That hurts. That does hurt a lot. So anyway, and then I moved... Yeah, I moved to to LA in eighty seven ish. And And how old are you at this time? Twenty six. Okay. And then my agents sent me four scripts saying that Larry that I'd worked with had written these four scripts with this guy and it was called The Seinfeld Chronicles and would I give it a read? And so I did. And at the time, actually, I was being courted, or I had been courted by Warner Brothers to do my own series, to star in my own series. So, and I was definitely not the star in these scripts. It was like a supporting player, particularly in two out of the four, I had something to do, but in the other two, I didn't so much. But the writing was so unusual. It was like nothing that was on television, you know, at that time. You know, it's like what's on TV then, um, uh, uh, Cheers and Cosby and sort of straight down the middle. Very funny. I'm not disparaging those shows at all, but you know what I mean. So, yeah. So I went in and I met with Lair and I met Jerry. I didn't really know him. I sort of knew him kind of, you know, maybe I'd seen him do something (laughs) somewhere. but And we hit it off right away. And it was very like unnetworky. I don't know how else to say it. There weren't executives around. There was it was just the guys in their sneakers eating cereal, frankly, hanging out, making jokes. It was very loosey goosey. It was like, you know, the kids running the candy store, sort of. And we made a deal, lickety split, because they needed to start shooting like the following week and over the weekend. My my agent was working overtime and and then we made the deal and off we went and we made those four episodes. That was it, four episodes. I should say that Rick Ludwin, who's an NBC executive who recently passed away just like a couple months back, is responsible for all of this because Jerry had made a pilot. The pilot was not well received. And in fact, they really, really didn't like it. But Jerry had made his sort of deal was through, I think, as I understand it, was through late night programming at NBC. And so Rick Ludwin evidently took the money that he had for two Bob Hope specials and applied it to these four episodes to get them done, to give Jerry another shot. And they added a female character who was me. And then it started to get, you know, a little bit of interest. But it wasn't a hit for a number of years, you know. Really? Yeah. It took like three years. God, they wouldn't do that today, would they? Let a show try to... I don't think so. Although it's so different now because everything is so sort of bifurcated. Where, yeah. You know, I mean, so many platforms and this and that. I mean, I don't know how anybody figures anything out. <laughs> Seriously, I don't. Yeah, the, the business models definitely change from back in those... NBC days. Where oh my you had God! It doesn't resemble it. A few channels and cable was just starting, and right. And so, was it all of us? So was it a slow build until you became super, super recognizable person? And I think so. So it was that's. I think that's actually a kinder way, you know, than to have massive overnight fame Success. and recognition. Yeah, and, and I had it, my kids during that time, and so. Were you already married when you moved to L.A.? No, I got married when we moved here. And then I got pregnant uh, twice during Seinfeld and and had the kids then. So I had sort of a split focus, <laughs> needless to say. 
<laughs> so I was doing the show very happily, loved it. It was a dream in so many ways. But I also had a, a bigger fish to fry at the same time Yeah, called Two Boys. And how old are they now? 22 and 27. So they're all grown up. Yeah. What Although they're it? still my babies. Aww. I think of them as, you know, my little baby men. Did you love being a mother when they were little? Loved. Well, it was hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Was it the, the balancing part? The balancing part, getting them to sleep was, uh, my oldest was not a good sleeper. Mm-hmm. And that was tricky when you've got early calls in the morning and stuff like that. That was really pretty brutal, actually. I think also, actually, I suffered from some postpartum after both uh, pregnancies. And that was, well, I don't think I did. Mm-hmm. But nobody was calling it that then. So mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, shit, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I've lost my mind. <laughs> I think it's only in the past, I don't know, maybe decade that it's something people really talk about. Yeah. Did you have any of that? I did. I had it with my son. I, not with my daughter at all, but with my son. I had it quite badly. Mm. And I didn't realize it. I didn't I just thought I couldn't get my shit together. And I was so all over the place emotionally and really disconnected from myself. Oh, it was I know, terrible, terrifying. lonely, yeah. awful, awful. Could you talk about it to anybody? I, I couldn't even, I didn't even understand what was happening. Like right. I didn't, I just thought I must be tired and I just need to power through. And I had no, at the time I didn't have the facility for real introspection and I think that going through that experience really brought me to a place in my life where I was like, okay, once I got out of it, I was like, I need to figure out what was underneath all that because that was really intense. Yeah. And, and, and the only reason that I, you know, it was really a lifesaver. One day my ex-husband, my husband at the time, he said, you know, I think, I think you might have postpartum depression. And I was like, what? I was stunned. I had I, I thought it was just coming out of nowhere, but then I just felt myself break open with so much relief. Mm. And just to have someone observe and name it. And then I was like, shit, I think you're right. I better go get help and start to deal with this and, and talk to somebody. And so I started doing yoga and I started doing acupuncture and I started seeing a therapist and then it started to Abate. pass. Yeah. What was yours like? Well, the first time I just powered through. I just remember it was terrifying. I mean, it really was scary because there was this feeling like I should not have had children. And that is that is uh, that is terrifying yeah. after you've given birth. <laughs> it's not a good feeling because, you know, look, you you spend your whole life taking care of yourself being responsible for yourself. And as soon as you give birth, yourself is second priority. And that is appropriate. And But also, by the way, the other thing that people, I'm sure they do talk about this. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert. But your hormones crash after you give birth, like crash. I've been told it's like going through an immediate menopause. And so I think that does a number on your head, you know? For sure. Um, but with my first son, I weathered it. I just got through it, just, you know, nose to the grindstone. How was it manifesting? Were you super emotional? I was weeping all the time. Mm -hmm. I think you said you were separated from yourself. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like myself. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, yeah. 
It was. I, it's like you're. You've been taken over by somebody. Something yeah. else. Like my brain wasn't my own. It was a very uncomfortable feeling, yeah. and I remember thinking that my husband was looking at me differently because I was different. I mean, it was really scary. Anyway, mm-hmm. and then, and I just sort of got through, mm-hmm. and I think it was gone in about a month. But then with that's, my that's... second son, I panicked. I, it happened again. I didn't realize it. But all of a sudden, I had this feeling like we'd given him the wrong name, and I needed to change his name. We had named him Charlie, and I got it in my in, in my crazy brain that we needed to name him Ernest. And I was bawling, and I just didn't know what was happening. And we'd, fucked, we'd already fucked up this child with this name of Charlie, which is probably the most affable, wonderful name in the world. And I remember I was actually talking to my sister-in-law, and she said, Hey, Julia, I think this is postpartum. <laughs> I think you should go to the doctor. And I said, Oh, yeah, I think I'm going to do that. And I did. I went to my... Actually, I went to my gynecologist at the time, and he gave me a shot of progesterone or estrogen or something like that, and I was better in 24 hours. Wow. Yes. That is unbelievable. Yes. I wish someone had done that to me. I know. I sort of wish that, too, because you said yoga and stuff. I'm like, oh, it's going to take forever. Exactly. (laughs) I did the freaking hippie style. I didn't know the shot was an option. Fuck the hippie style. We'll get back to today's chat in a minute. Bar carts are one of our passions at Goop. In our shop, we have a particularly beautiful custom bar cart that's built in Los Angeles at designer Chris Earle's home studio. It's made of gorgeous ebonized oak wood with glass paneling and brass hardware. Equally important is what goes on top of the bar cart. And if it's a goop party, then there's definitely Cattle One Botanical included. Cattle One Botanical is vodka distilled with real botanicals. What sets it apart is that there's no sugar and no artificial flavors or sweeteners. Cattle One Botanical comes in three varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom, and they all make for fresh tasting, goopy cocktails. For recipe ideas, head to goop.com. And to order Kettle One Botanical now, head to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You know, it's funny because a lot of people will say, how do you balance, you know, work and kids and this career with that career and and I never hear, you know, men on panels being asked that question. I know. And I always find it really interesting as if like men are allowed to kind of abdicate or we assume that they have different responsibilities in the home than women. Most men do, I think, still. And the truth is, I really do think that women bear this when when we have children and we're trying to ba- have a career at the same time. It's incredibly distressing in one way, because you're pulled in these two directions. You love your career and you adore your children more than anything in the world. And you're trying to fulfill both versions of yourself at the same time. Yeah. And then there are these societal pressures and stuff. And I assume at the time too, then you were probably the most famous woman in America. No. Well, one of them. Yeah. It's funny how you get asked that. And because I feel... 
I mean, first of all, just in my own experience, I have a husband who's very hands-on in the house and with the boys. And so that was, had he not been, forget it. And he came from a family where his dad had done the same thing. So it was second nature to him. It wasn't like me saying, I really need you to pick them up, pick them up or do a puzzle or whatever. whatever, He was just there doing it. He was doing it. Oh, he sounds great. Yeah, he is great. He's the absolutely spectacular father. Yeah. And what is it like being married for such a long time? It's nice. Tell me. Well, we have a long history, which is very cozy. You know, I mean, we've been together a super long time. We've been through, we've had wonderful moments and horrible moments, and we've sort of lived through all of it. Mm. And so that history, uh, you know, you, you, you build on it. You build on it, you know? I don't know how else to say it. I mean, That's so, a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. But it is kind of amazing. It, it's gone by in a flash. Just, and, and there's that trope that everyone says. But it's true. I, I mean, what? I mean, we've been married over 30 years. And that's like, I, I can't believe I'm saying that because that's like what old people say. And I don't think of myself like that. I think of myself as, you know, uh, you know, not that. But anyway, I say it proudly. How long have you been married now? Only one year and a bit. Oh, congratulations. It's very new. And... I've had to learn a lot about, well, I learned how scared I was of real intimacy in this marriage. Oh. And so I'm always really curious because I think in a long marriage, you know, I, I think, gosh, what will be the next lesson that this brings up? If you're uncovering like, oh, what is this? What is this here? To, like, how can I use this to get me closer to myself and closer to the marriage? I'm just really fascinated by good marriages and long marriages. Because mm. I think there are a lot of long marriages that aren't good marriages. Right. Totally. And so I want to know, like, what are the what are the ingredients? It's really fun to have adventure together. I'm a big proponent of that. And also, Brad and I both really like sort of being athletic and doing things athletic together. Mm-hmm. You know, skiing, hiking, canoeing. I have the same, and my husband's name is Brad, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. And we love to do all that. We really like to do the same stuff, which I think helps a lot. huge. Yeah. Huge. It's nice to have (laughs) activities. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, in fact, you know, I mean, we, we made a list of sort of a wish list of places that we wanted to go with our kids, and we've just been ticking them off over the years. But also places that we want to go as just sort of a couple. We were canoeing in the Boundary Waters off of Minnesota recently. That was amazing. Wow. We've been down. We went to the Grand Canyon. We went to Normandy. Travel and getting around is really fabulous. That's yeah. Great. But he's somebody that I depend on. He's very intelligent. He's much smarter than I am. And so I really count on his brain for for my work, to be honest. You know, mm. I will... Ask him questions about scripts, about edits. So more as a producer than as an actor, you rely on him? Both. And that's awfully nice, too. Yeah. Are you foodies? Do you like to cook and eat? You know what? I don't like to cook and eat anymore. 
Interesting. I'm sort of over it. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Good for I mean, you. I, well, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just my refrigerator is so boring. That's... And I mean, I like to go out to eat. And I, I don't mean to say I won't enjoy a great meal, but I get irritated by dinner time. Right. Do you get hangry or you're just annoyed by the I'm ritual just of dinner? I'd like to have, <laughs> can we just have an apple with some almond butter and call that dinner and then like watch Rachel Maddow? Can we do that? <laughs> Believe me, that is my life. I want to talk about your, on the producer vein, yeah. your new movie. I didn't realize that it was a remake of Force Majeure, right? Yes, the Swedish film. Yes, Charlie's calling me. Ask him if he regrets not being named Ernest. I want to be Ernest. <laughs> I should. You should. Let's get Charlie, on the how do you feel about this? I'm going to do it right now. Oh, he didn't answer. Oh, darn it. It went straight Charlie. to voicemail. Wait, I'm going to do it one more time and then I give up. Put him on speaker yeah. if he answers. Fuck. He's leaving me a message. Oh. I'll try it in a second. Okay. Okay, so I made this movie back in 2014 with Searchlight called Enough Said. Yep. With Nicole Hall of Center, and it was super Love fun. That movie. Thank you so much. I did too. So they came to me that they wanted to work on another thing, and they came to me because they'd seen this a movie, Force Majeure at Khan, the Swedish film, and had Ruben Oslin, who made it, was very interested in doing an American adaptation. And so they screened it for me, and I fucking loved it. And it's really a amazing, weird tone. I've never seen a movie with that tone before. Well, it's, yes. And it's very Scandinavian. It's very Swedish. Yes. Yes. And so I thought, oh yeah, it's so ripe for an American, you know, let's put an American lens on this story, right? So thus it began. That was five years ago. First, we hired Jesse Armstrong, who did Succession, does Succession. Mm -hmm. He'd also been a writer on Veep and uh, to do the adaptation. Yes, so we hired um, Jim Rash and Nat Faxon to direct, and they did a pass on the script. And this was over a long period of time. It was tricky because the movie takes place in Austria. We needed it to be—actually, originally it was going to be just somewhere in Europe, right? So that means you have a specific window of time of the year in which to shoot, right. which means you have to have all your ducks lined up. You need snow because the movie is about— an avalanche, or yes. a perceived avalanche. A perceived avalanche. Will you just say briefly the premise of the movie, right? Yes. Family, skiing trip, Austria. Yes. Family, mom, dad, two kids on a ski trip in Austria, and they're outside sitting in a restaurant on high up on a mountain, and an aval- a, a cannon goes off like an avalanche cannon, and there's an avalanche they see far in the distance, and it looks really cool from far away, and then it gets closer and closer and closer and closer until it seems as if it's about to hit them. And the mother, which is the character I play, grabs the children, and the father, which is the character that Will Ferrell plays, grabs his cell phone and runs in the opposite direction. And that's really the beginning of the movie. And the rest of the movie is sort of how the sweater unravels from that moment. And um, it's super interesting, I think, story, because it's about relationships, yeah. by the way, yeah. which we were talking about, about marriage, about trust, about truth-telling, about shame, 
which is a bitch, as we all know. And um, about masculinity, about masculinity, and about femininity yeah. in our in our movie. So it was a lot of fun to explore, as you know, on the page and then in the doing of it. Yeah. And did you go to Austria? Or? Yeah, we were in Austria Amazing. for a number of months. Yeah, and it was so fun. To be, I mean, in the Alps, by the way, it's unbelievably exotic. I've never done anything like that before when it comes to location stuff. I mean, I've gone to a few places, but nothing like this. This I was mean, crazy. It looks stunning. It is. It was. It is so stunning, in fact, that I'm concerned people are going to think it's CGI. <laughs> really, because it ain't. It's really. What like town that. was it? Where were you? We were in three different towns. We were in a tiny little town called Fis, which is divine. Great ski place. Are you a skier? Yes. Oh. Mm. Love skiing. Yeah. So anyway, Austria's a great place to go skiing. I haven't been since I was really young. My mom was doing a TV movie in Germany when I was little, and we went to Kitzbühel mm. skiing one time. Was it great? It was It was great. I just, I just remember that my dad was a little on edge with all the German. It was still, you know, how it oh, was, yeah. like uh-huh. how our maybe Jewish parents uh-huh. were close to uh-huh. closer to the war. And then this German guy walked across my dad's skis with his skis in a line and my dad almost yeah. So it that's my that's my overriding memory of, of Austria. <laughs> Little family tension. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. But it was beautiful. What does it say ultimately about relationships? Well, it leaves a lot up for, for, I think, the audience to digest. There's a certain amount. It's not black and white. It's somewhat gray. There's a little ambiguity that we leave in place at the end of the film very intentionally because I think the big takeaway is that good people can do bad things and how do they recover from those moments? And can they own them? And what happens when you own your bad behavior? Yeah. And what happens when you don't? And the shame that surrounds all of it. It's complicated. And so that's what is sort of up for discussion, I think. I think, too, from the sort of female point of view, sort of witnessing her husband do this in the movie, at first she's not sure, almost she's not sure that it happened. And then she begins to digest it further and and there's a confrontation but there is the the fact of of that happening to this woman is scarier than the avalanche itself the notion that wait a minute you're not all in for us right. is more terrifying than being hit by an avalanche you absolutely. know absolutely yeah so that's what the story's about and it's it's there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of comedy in it too it's a real mashup and how great is Will Ferrell to work with? Can I tell you something? Do you know Will? A, a little bit, but I adore him. He is like a dreamboat. He's so great. He's a great guy. He is, you know, game, ready to go. We just He's hit it so off. so fucking funny. He's so funny. He has a moment, a few moments of very serious, dramatic substance, and and he nails it. So it's really fun. I just wanted to... I'm going to call Charlie. Yeah, call him. And then I want to ask you one last question just about... Where does he live? With us. Hi, Levy. So I am uh, in the middle of doing a podcast right now over at Goop. And 
no, no, no. I was just, he said, oh, okay. And so, and so one story that came up was about how I wanted to name you Ernest. Remember that story? When, so can I put you on speaker and you can talk about that for a second while I'm talking? <laughs> okay. Why? What do you have to do? Put hair and makeup on? Oh, he's... Okay. He's giving a guy his key. Thank you so much. Okay, hold on. I'm put you on speaker. Say hi to Gwyneth. Hi, Gwyneth. Hi, Charlie. How are you? <laughs> I am terrific. I, I want to ask you a question. Yes, please. Do Shoot. you have regrets about not being named Ernest? Um, no, absolutely not. Not a one. I, 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 ha I have to say that the fact that my parents even considered naming me Ernest is a little bit alarming to me. <laughs> so you, uh, you're okay. I, you survived with the name Charlie. I've survived with the name Charlie. Although technically I guess my name is Charles, but no one calls me that. But yeah, I, um, Ernest to me, it's just, it's a little wild that they considered that, I think. Um, and I don't think it fits me very well. My no. life would have been very different if I was an Ernest. No, honey, it would have been the same. It would have been oh, the same. Well, thank you. Thank you, mom. Okay. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all. We just wanted your input. Yeah, we needed yeah, to so know that, how you that's felt. That's my input. I'm, I'm very happy with Charlie. I'm content, and I don't plan on changing it. Thank God. Good boy. Okay, well, yes. go back to your life. All right. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Love you. I'll call you later. <laughs> Bye. One last question. So you're, well, you're not, you're not at your top health right at this exact moment, but yeah. you are very healthy fundamentally and systemically. Oh, yes, oh, yes, yes. yes. And I just wanted to ask you, as you know, we have so many women listeners. Yes. How a diagnosis like that, what does that do to your perspective and the way that you live your life? And was it fucking terrifying? It was the, the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. And this is what I liken it to. A very long time ago, actually, Brad and I were taking one of these crazy adventure trips. And we were in the Bahamas or off the coast of the Bahamas. And we were with this science boat and we were studying dolphins, wild dolphins. Anyway, I was in the water. Brad was on the boat and I was far from the boat. And all of a sudden, Brad comes to the bow of the boat and he says, hey, Jules, I want you to uh, come back to the boat now. There's a shark in the water. And I remember thinking, and his voice was it, it was, it had a pitch to it that I had never heard before. You know, he was uh, scared, really scared. And so I started swimming towards the boat. And I just thought that what I did was I kept my eye on the ladder of the boat. And I did not look around me. Mm -hmm. And I did not anything. I was just like, I'm going towards that ladder. I'm all about that ladder. I'm all about that ladder. And that's how I got through the cancer, frankly. What was your ladder? Getting past it, getting it out of my body. That was my ladder. And so it was just a question of, you know, you know, and there are all these steps that, you know, I mean, uh, there are a gazillion different kinds of breast cancer. But in my case, I had to have chemotherapy first. Mm -hmm. Huh? I hadn't heard that before. And then I had to have surgery after that. So it was a question of, and, you know, the chemotherapy for me was every three weeks. So it was for, for four months. And so it was just, you know, ticking off each chemotherapy and getting through those sessions. 
and and just counting them down. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sort of like the opposite of an advent calendar. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, it was just <clears throat> like eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. We're going to get this done. Everything else fell away. Let's just get this done. And I really clung but, to my family. Right. But it's interesting because that kind of singularity, I think, like you can manifest an outcome, right? If you're just swimming to the ladder at all costs, like you get to the ladder. I got to the ladder. Yeah. And it was a 10-foot bull shark in the water. Oh, by my the way. goodness. Yeah, it was huge. And it was, a, uh, and it was a bad cancer, too. But, you know, you get there. But I didn't, you know, I always, there's not breast cancer in my family. I, I considered myself very healthy, mm-hmm. exercise. You know, I mean, what? Yeah. I, it was like, what? What is happening? I, mm-hmm. I, it just didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It really didn't. But you just power through. And then on the other side of it, do you feel any different in any way? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm physically different, you know. I've, I take uh, tamoxifen now, which suppresses estrogen. That's kind of a bummer because there are side effects to that that aren't great. You know, I had, I had a double mastectomy and I had reconstruction. So, you know, there's... but. Whatever, I'm here. So who gives a fuck? I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. And that's really great. And I have strength and I can do things. You know, my life is back. And, and you know, I was able to go back and do the final season of Veep and shoot this movie and stuff like that. But it does give you a kind of, um, I, I mean, you know, there's still moments, I think, when you take life for granted because that's the way people work. But I definitely maybe I'm I'm certainly more aware of my mortality in a way that perhaps I wasn't prior to that. And does that in any way shape the decisions that you make or? Oh, yeah. 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 Just about choices you make in life. So you're more apt to go on one of your adventures or more apt to take the day in bed like you did yesterday, yesterday, give yourself your the permission to do that kind of thing. Correct. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs> I remain your fan forever. Thank you. So nice. Thank Back you Asha. for being here. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I loved getting to catch up with her and her new film, Downhill, is in theaters starting February 14th. Do not miss it. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>